If you find yourself worrying about voting security in 2018, you're not alone. The experts are worried too. The way I describe it, and this is unfortunate and not truly fair to election officials, is we're sort of arming janitors to fight Navy SEALs or Special Forces folks. Welcome to Bots and Bouts from Yahoo News. I'm Grant Burningham. This week I'm talking to Joe Hall, the chief technologist at the Center for Democracy and Technology. They're a nonprofit that tries to protect privacy and expression online. They also want to provide controls on government surveillance. Their group that Representative Ro Khanna consulted with when he wrote the Internet Bill of Rights, which is a bill that he's hoping to get introduced into law next session. Hall is a great guy to talk to about pretty much anything. Briefly, he's got master's degrees in astrophysics and information systems from UC Berkeley and also a PhD. He's an expert on voting, security, and privacy, and I'm very excited to have him on the show today. Joe Hall, thanks so much for coming on Bots and Balance this morning. Thank you for having me. If you go back even a decade, I think there was this thought that you know the internet would create Arab Springs or revolution in Iran, that capitalism would come to China because of the internet, and now I almost feel like we're living with all those assumptions turned on their head. Do you still think the internet is a net good? I can tell you this year has definitely shook my sort of default feeling that the internet is a net good. I, I do think what what we're seeing is the political boundaries being written back onto the internet, even though we had built it in a way that sort of ignored those political boundaries and geographic boundaries. I do think that there's still really great potential. You know, something we do is we work with dissidents and at-risk populations around the world, and their ability to communicate with each other privately and securely is still something that I think outweighs a lot of the big numbers we're seeing in terms of people affected in small ways in large numbers. There are people that there are people that need to have in order to live their lives and advocate for freedom and human rights values in more oppressive regimes. They really need to have uh, a global internet where they can speak securely and privately with each other. So there was an article in the New York Times, I believe it was last week, which talked about the world emerging with these three different internets, one in the United States, which seems to have some corporate limitations on it, um, as well as some governmental restrictions, one in Europe, which has extreme governmental restrictions on it, and then one in China, which is kind of designed for entirely different purposes than the ones in the United States and Europe. Do you think that's happening? Uh, absolutely. Well, I would say it's really two internets. I think constructing a wall, so to speak, between the Europe and the U.S. is not realistic. I mean, businesses will change how they do business so that they can sell their products in places like Europe. It's just too big of a market to create parallel products where you have a U.S. version of your product and an EU version of your product. News organizations have been doing that. So if you try to visit certain news sites from the EU, you'll see they're blocked um, with ostensibly pointing to things like the GDPR. So I really think it's two internets. And I would say it's kind of unfortunate because the Chinese internet is like a parallel universe. It really is. You can send queries into it that come back with malicious traffic. It's a very hostile network to what we would call sort of internet freedom values. And so I think the artificial barrier between the EU and the United States, you know, it won't be a wall, it may be a bump, whereas transferring data across the two countries might uh, entail a little bit more work, but it's not something that will be a completely separate and incommunicado kind of internet like China is at the moment, unless you use pretty specialized tools. 
So you talked about privacy as being one of the biggest issues on the internet, and I know that's something that your group advocates for. Can I play devil's advocate for a minute? Please. Is privacy really a good thing? I would say that one of the problems on the internet right now is harassment and these groups of anonymous trolls who get together to drive journalists underground or take them off the web entirely. Is anonymous speech really a good thing for our society? I would say unqualified, yes. There are a bunch of things that we can't do or we can't do to the extent that we'd like to if we have to be tracked everywhere we go. Um, and these are things like you know, visiting websites about sexually transmitted diseases, other places that walk you through dealing with sexual identity crises and stuff like that. There are people who sort of advocate for a driver's license for the internet, some sort of global identifier or something that would follow you around. And what I say back to them is in open societies, we accept some inability of detecting bad people doing bad things. And we have to build up mechanisms that deal with the sort of toxic waste that we now see that, unfortunately, as we saw with probably this week with the release of from Twitter of 10 million tweets and other associated material that they associated with the Russian campaign, there are some pretty sophisticated and, and long-running attempts to influence folks using these mechanisms, and, and we have to sort of inoculate ourselves against those. As long as the web is really run by ad dollars like it is right now, can we have privacy? You can. It's just extremely hard. People like me will teach folks how to surf using tools that will block certain kinds of content. So, for example, third-party content loading into a web page. The trick is, is if you turn all that off, the web looks like a pretty horrible place. It's just black text on white backgrounds. It's like straight out of 1996. And so part of the problem is if you want to accept more privacy, you're going to interact with a different kind of Internet, a different kind of web that you have to actually garden a little more. Um, and so there are... Some tools that allow you to do this, the Electronic Frontier Foundation has something called a privacy badger, sort of learns as you go. Apple has built into Safari a similar thing that learns as you go to, to detect things that are following you and shut them off. It's called intelligent tracking protection. Uh, but you're right that two things, the ad-driven nature of the web and content and free services, but also the rise of machine learning is another aspect here. So advertisers want to know as much as they can about you to target the content at you so that you might liberate dollars from your wallet, right? But increasingly, companies are collecting tons and tons of signals about you for inference purposes, to run models about how they've seen other humans behave. We've seen, for example, Amazon Alexa and uh, I believe Google Home. They have different kinds of patents that cover things like detecting when you're ill or if you're emotionally depressed and things like that. And so that involves doing things like having your Alexa listen for if you have a sniffle or if um, you're, you run in the water a lot in the, 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 the bathroom and stuff like that. So in addition to the advertising nature of stuff, there's, a, there's this tendency to start collecting tons of data to build models that you can learn about your users, about things that they might, might not even know about themselves. Joe, I wonder in your personal life, Speakers listen to us now. TVs listen to us now. Um, our email is read by these computers, which serve us better ads. How much of that do you let worry you? And do you have different habits than regular people when it comes to your digital life? I have very strange habits. I use two different browsers when I browse the web. One is a very locked down version of Firefox, which is my personal favorite browser. 
um, that blocks all third-party content. So the web looks pretty much like black text on a white background unless I do some turn some knobs. And then I have Chrome as a session browser where every time I open it and close it, it forgets everything that happened between the two sessions. So if I really need to do something complicated, I do it there. I also do things like I'll travel with a Faraday bag, a metal bag that I can put cell phones in so that they can't communicate outwards. If you know I need to have a meeting with some sensitive folks and I want to make sure that that at least no one's tracking us and you can put it under a couch or something to try and remove the microphone properties and people using them to bug you and things like that. And th that's just because, you know, I, I live and love being able to take control of your environment, both digital and physical. Do you own, say, an Amazon Alexa? I do, although I'm not on Facebook. Let me explain what. So I left Facebook about a year ago because I could not convince myself how they were using the data. Um, it, it just started to get even an expert like me just could not figure out what they were doing. Whereas other platforms like Twitter and other ones, they're a little more forthcoming with, with um, what they're doing there. Um, but Alexa, for example, I tend to unplug it a lot. So it may not be the most useful thing because it needs to like sort of, you know, get started and everything like that. Um, but you know, when you're, when I'm putting on a suit to go do something in DC and I need to know what the weather is, it's pretty useful to say, smart speaker rather than making all your listeners things go off uh, smart speaker <laughs> open big sky or something like that which will give me you know very detailed weather information so i really I, I like them for very simple things i don't use them for much i don't buy things with them and i tend to unplug it a lot and use the the mute button which at least on alexa devices does when it's red it does turn the microphone solidly off and how paranoid are you like on a scale of one to 10 and how paranoid should regular people be? So I'm probably at a seven. The things I worry about often tend to be foreign governments and people with a lot of power, like organized crime doing things to get access to stuff. Uh, but that's because I feel like I can do a pretty good job as a technical expert. I have two master's degrees and a PhD in like computer things, right? Like, and like, so I can actually, I know how to shape my mobile and desktop experience to at least minimize the kind of data that people get about me, or at least that I want them to get. So most people aren't there. And so most people I think should be higher up, maybe an eight or a nine, um, until we get better user controls, better tools for people to use, things built into the products we use that respect people's privacy more, and uh, the laws. You know, we definitely need to make sure that, that, that you know, there are uh, uh, two countries in the world that don't have basic privacy laws. It's China, China and the United States right now. It used to be China, Turkey, and the United States, but Turkey passed a law last year. And, and it's it's high time that we gave people some basic legal protections in their sensitive data. So I know that Representative Ro Khanna has worked up a Internet Bill of Rights, which he's hoping to get passed in the coming years. And I know that he talked to your group when he was putting it together. Do you have hope for that type of thing, fixing some of our problems? I do. I think that there's a lot of cooks in the kitchen, so to speak, right now in terms of privacy legislation. A lot of folks advocating that, you know, we shouldn't even look at the European GDPR as an analog. Um, some of us think that we should try and find, you know, what's what are the pieces from the European framework that we can take and apply 
here in the United States because that allows us to interoperate sort of on a privacy sense with, with Europe. If we can match them to some degree, maybe not go the whole way, but match them to some degree. Um, I'm hopeful that that that's going to uh, change things in the United States. We have a shrinking window. You know, this is how politics and political uh, issues work is that, you know, we're guaranteed for after the midterms or, or, or you know, within a, a few months for the world and the United States uh, attention to shift to something else. Who knows what it'd be? Maybe we get a election hacked again. Who knows, right? Um, if that happens, then there may be diminishing uh, interest in the privacy issue. So the Facebook data scandal has kind of been personified as Cambridge Analytica. And just really quickly for my listeners, this was a company which was hired by the Trump campaign, which claimed to do some very specific targeting and then kind of like a claim to make some sort of mind-altering content decisions for users. Half of that strikes me as sort of outlandish, and half of that strikes me as the platform working exactly how Facebook tells advertisers it works and that you can target very small groups of people. And I think as long as that is part of the Facebook sales and as long as you can do that as an advertiser, it's going to be a very dangerous tool for democracies. There's going to be ways that you can um, drive down turnout or give people bad information. Um, do you think Facebook is a inherently flawed platform in what it's able to, to sell about you and about users? So I would say that, you know, Facebook allows a ton of people to communicate who couldn't before, especially in, you know, developing countries where, unfortunately, Facebook is the Internet for many of them. You know, there are these... Uh, agreements that allow folks to essentially get access to quote unquote the internet that is really sort of subsidized by Facebook and telecoms in a, a few countries. Um, and so that in and of itself, we can, I don't want to lose sight of the opportunities it's bringing to people who may not have been able to get information on the, the prices of the crop that they grow, you know, in their immediate area and may have, you know, gotten, not, not gotten the best price or whatever. That, that's the, the, those kinds of things are really changing the world at sort of a grassroots level. But definitely to your point, the fact that you can pay money in many cases to target a few individuals with with very detailed targeting criteria, that, that's something that we've just we, we haven't had a lot of experience with. And unfortunately it means that you have this sort of content policing thing going on where people are like, Facebook has a responsibility to clean up this stuff, a responsibility to make sure there's not fake, fake news, a responsibility to make sure that there's only sort of legitimate ads, right? And all of those things are things that we have a very hard time agreeing on what the hell those things are. Like, you know, what is terrorist content? That's a pretty nuanced conversation. Um, so I do think that, that this is something that we're, we're grappling with. Um, I don't think the answer is like, automated content moderation here at cdt we have uh, about a year of work showing that that all that these automated ways of noticing potentially bad content what that essentially does is helps the humans who need to review this content you're always going to need a human with some sort of rubric some sort of you know checklist that is looking at content and making a decision on whether or not that can be displayed or not 
And part of the problem I, that I see here is we, we've, we've seen, especially running up into the election, things like, oh, the NAACP wants to take ads out on Facebook to get out the vote, not for a particular candidate or anything like that. Just go vote, right? And unfortunately, in Facebook right now, if you're going to do anything related to elections, you have to wait 14 days before that ad can go up. Well, if, you're, if election day is within 14 days, that means you're effectively not able to speak in that amount of time. And so we really need to be careful what we're doing here or things that we care about, civil rights, democratic participation, civic participation, might also be damaged in, in the crossfire. Uh, 2018 is sort of a first run at what I will call a cultivated web at some of these platforms like Facebook. And what I mean by that is this is a first attempt to try and keep fake content off or at least flag fake content for users and keep it from propagating as quickly as true content. How are they doing? And is this the future of the information space? Man, I really hope that big platforms curating content is not the future of information space. But it, unfortunately, billions of people talking to billions of people hasn't really worked out that well, especially when you have bots and AI and things like that that could masquerade as people. Um, it's just totally strange to go from a few years ago where they were platforms who didn't have opinions, who wanted to make sure that they could help you better express your opinion. And now we're going to something very different where they're going to actually start being like media companies. And, and that moves you in various ways in the legal regime to where now you're making editorial decisions. And one, I'm not convinced the content will be much better. Um, it may be more boring. I'm not sure. <laughs> maybe they have ways of doing this stuff. But at the same time, maybe maybe they know something about doing new media that we don't know. And it's, so I'm I'm willing to watch what happens, but I don't have a lot of high hopes for that. But it scares you. Well, the, the scary part is we really don't have any clue where we could end up with. So I'm going to get you on a slightly easier topic. How bad is our voting system right now in terms of security? That's a really hard question to answer. It's not near ideal. It's better than it's ever been. Um, I've been working on this since 2003, 2002, um, when, unfortunately, we got $4 billion from the federal government to the states, and everyone went out and bought voting computers, computers without a paper trail that keep votes in digital memory. Um, and we saw the consequences of that. Uh, up until 2016, a lot of us worried mostly about hacks on the vote counts themselves, hacks on the voting machines, hacks to the back end that might change the totals later. And what 2016 showed us is, wow, there are a lot of ways to affect the election without directly attacking voting machines and vote counting machines. So, you know, um, denial of service attacks where you send too much traffic at a website and it just falls apart and it won't work anymore. We saw that happen on a, a number of um, results reporting pages. We saw attacks against voter registration databases. Um, we saw phishing attacks against uh, uh, a 122 uh, uh, election officials were uh, spearfished from a voting machine vendor that the Russians had broken into. And we don't know how many of them clicked on the link or installed malware. But what we do know is if you have 122 people that are targeted with a phishing attack, you're guaranteed that the number of people who clicked on that thing are bigger than zero. 
so we're better off than we've ever have been. Um, the way I describe it, and this is unfortunate and not truly fair to election officials, is we're sort of arming janitors to fight Navy SEALs or Special Forces folks. Like, we have a lot, right, to do before we really can adequately defend ourselves. And right now we're sort of sharpening their broomsticks and things like that and hoping that um, the Navy SEAL folks find some other targets that are more interesting or more financially, you know, uh, uh, susceptible or whatever. Um, but, yeah, so we're better off than we've ever been. But we have a lot of work to do and a lot of, of, of investment that we need in election as critical infrastructure. So there's been this West Virginia pilot that I saw you comment on, which involves voting via phone using the buzzword of the moment, blockchain. Can you walk me through that? So West Virginia has taken the ridiculous step of deciding that they're going to not only vote on a mobile device, which is in and of itself is just a bad idea, but use a blockchain mechanism, so something associated with cryptocurrencies or Bitcoin. Um, and don't get me wrong, blockchains, even though it's like the hotness for the past year and everyone's throwing money at it, um, th there's, there's really interesting properties of them. They're not the thing you want to use for voting in public elections for a few different reasons. One is you're voting on the Internet. You're fundamentally sending electronic ballot information over the internet to some other system. The phones we use, the desktop computers we use, the networks in between them, the servers on the other side, every single one of those things is fundamentally insecure. As we see, you know, we, we back things up, we have to upgrade them constantly. Um, even banks, right? You know, they, people will say, hey, I can bank online. Why can't I vote online? Well, banks have enormous budgets for fraud. And, you know, if 10% of uh, your transactions go wrong or fraudulently uh, captured or something like that. You can buy insurance. You can make people whole. You can plan for that. If 10% of ballots disappear or are modified without detection before they end up somewhere, we can't accept that whatsoever. But um, in addition to it being internet voting, one of the things I'd like to stress is that you know, it's fundamentally uh, a cryptographic system using cryptography that we will break within about 20 years. And so, you know, to put it in perspective... I'm sorry, what? Yeah. So we, there's there will be quantum computers within, you know, 20 years, that's a pretty good uh, estimation, that will be able to uh, instantly get through most of the crypto, crypto we use right now. To put this in perspective, I'll say, you know, it would be really unfortunate if a overseas Marine who cast a ballot and is really happy to cast a ballot in the 2018 midterm election in West Virginia using this app, it would be really unfortunate if in 20 years you were able to walk up to that soldier and say, hey, is this is how you voted in the 2018 midterm. That's just unacceptable to me. But just uh, playing with that idea for a minute, in 20 years, that means we'll all just be totally naked, right? There will be no secrets. If it was like a light switch, that would be true. Luckily, there's a lot of us thinking really hard about how we're going to replace the crypto systems we use now and how we're going to make a transition from the ones we use now into what are called post-quantum crypto systems. And, you know, this has implications for things like that enormous NSA data center in Utah that, as far as we know, is just copying all the encrypted information because we're encrypting everything we can on the Internet and they're like, fine, we'll just collect all the crypt encrypted stuff and just sit on it until we can crack it. And that's the kind of stuff that, that we're trying our best to find ways to 
to make not as useful for our global government observers. Well, that's a sort of terrifying thought, which I hadn't thought about before. Oh, man, we should hang out sometime. <laughs> it's almost like, uh, yeah, it's like buried uranium or something that some future generation's going to stumble across. Hopefully you won't even notice the, 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 the switch. Most people shouldn't notice. I mean, if we do it right, then we build the new stuff, we put it in place, and we slowly switch people from the old stuff to the new stuff. We're getting a little bit better at that these days. Well, Joe, thanks so much for talking to me today. I really appreciate you taking the time. Sure. Thank you for having me. That's it for Bots and Ballots this week. I'm going to have a special election episode next week focused just on voting security. Please subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get yours if you want to give that a listen. Thanks to Joe Hall and my producer, Leah Hitchens. I will just say this week, if you haven't made plans to vote, please do. I'm Grant Burningham. Thank you for listening.